This podcast is made possible by Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield, the whole health company. Welcome to Go Bronx Podcast, Episode 20, which we are recording from the Bronx Museum of the Arts on the historic Grand Concourse. I'm Olga Luce. And I'm Angel. In this episode, we will talk about the old amusement parks of the Bronx. Before the advent of television and air conditioning, many New Yorkers spent their summers venturing outside to pass the time. Amusement parks were the stress relievers of the everyday nitty-gritty of life in the city, and the Bronx had plenty of fun to be had. That's right, the Bronx has a long tradition of outdoor entertainment that goes back to the 18th century when equestrian culture was the norm. Horse racing soon became a favorite pastime at places like the Fleetwood Racetrack, which is now the area between Sheridan and Webster Avenues, between East 164th and East 165th Streets. This reminds me of Episode 7, Lenny from the Block where we talk about the famous Jerome Park racetrack and its significance in the early development of our borough's entertainment culture. Well, let us start with the earliest known amusement park in the Bronx, which was located once on Classen Point. This park was approximately 50 acres situated on a triangular track at the end of Classen Point in the southeast section of the Bronx. A Clinton-Stevens owned the very end of Classen Point in the late 1890s and transformed the old Isaac Classen House, which incorporated parts of the older Willett House of the 1700s and that of the even older Thomas Cornell House of the 1600s, into an inn and restaurant. Mr. Stevens commemorated the house's history on a plaque and was quite proud of its origins. He was no stranger himself. That's right. Stevens was a contractor and engineer whose projects included the Erie Canal and Railroad and the New York State Aqueducts. He converted his estate on Classen Point into an amusement center and even ran his own ferry service to bring visitors from other parts of the city. Upon arrival, the guests would see the large bathing pavilion, casino, and the old restaurant and inn Mr. Stevens had converted, which at this time was called the Historic Inn. By 1910, when Classen Point Amusement Park officially opened, five-cent trolley car rides helped operations grow exponentially. It touted a twin racing coaster among its collection of fun. That same year, the park began to lease property to other amusement companies. One was Fairyland Park, which covered 20 acres with rides, scenic walks, and a bathing beach. Its carousel was made by Frederick Dole, who was one of the most revered carousel manufacturers of the time. Water rides by the Classen Point Aquarama Company accentuated fun on the Long Island Sound, while other companies ran roller skating rinks and penny arcades. Various sources claim that Classen Point Amusement Park, along with its neighboring amusement company operators, saw over 50,000 visitors on a good day. But a series of tragic incidents will soon play Classen Point. In June 1922, Classen Point Amusement Company's 100-foot Ferris wheel crashed into the Long Island Sound after a gust of strong wind. Many visitors were taken by surprise as the storm seemed to come out of nowhere. In the end, over seven people died, with tens of others suffering from injury. The owner of the Ferris wheel was charged with homicide, but that charge was dropped later on. Then, just four months later, 
a fire caused over $10,000 worth of damages. Classen Point Amusement Park, along with its partnering amusement companies, would continue to thrive until the stock market crash of 1929. People were becoming financially frugal and sought to spend their earnings on necessities rather than leisure. Also, water quality in the Long Island Sound began to show major signs of pollution. This was quite evident when the Classen Point Amusement Park's 300-by-50-foot unfiltered saltwater swimming pool took on the name The Inkwell because of its dark color. Yuck! By 1947, Kane's Casino was the last operating venue until most of Classen Point was purchased in 1949 to make way for Shorehaven Beach Club. Today, a series of condominium complexes occupies the site. Here's another one, Starlight Park. This park originally opened in 1918 as the Bronx Exposition Park at West Farms. Located right between the Bronx River and Bronx River Avenue, just south of East 177th Street, Bronx Exposition Park opened as a venue to cater major special events. The first one was a World's Fair called the Bronx International Exposition, which opened at the park in 1918. It was also referred to as the New York Exposition of Science, Arts, and Industry, where an array of American-made products were showcased to potential buyers from all over the world. The purpose was not only to entice international trade, but to celebrate the newly created Bronx County and to advertise the borough's rapid development boom. The park was supposed to be a grand success, with plans to construct large pavilions that would showcase all that the nation has to be proud for. There were plans to erect other pavilions to showcase products from various countries, and such technological wonders were on display, like the Holland No. 9, which was our nation's very first submarine commissioned by the Navy. The park also catered to younger and more adventurous crowds, with a Ferris wheel, roller coaster, and large saltwater swimming pool, which was supposed to be the largest concrete-made swimming pool in the world, fitting close to 9,000 people at one time. Yeah, that wouldn't work these days. No, it wouldn't. Harry McGarvey, who created the Panama Pacific Exposition in 1914, was the person behind the whole venture. He purchased most of the William Waldorf Astor Estate, at West Farms and planned to capture some of his previous successes in the exposition business. But the times weren't quite right for such a venture. The Bronx International Exposition was happening at a time when the country was reeling from the effects of World War I. Since trade with Europe was restricted and strong sentiments against plans to erect Latin American-themed pavilions were expressed from certain government officials, the idea of a planned international fair in the Bronx was rapidly diminishing for Mr. McGarvey. Yet the venue continued to thrive as an amusement park rather than an exhibition space, and by the following year, the park introduced more rides, games, and other additions fit for your all-American amusement park. By October 1919, the park was officially renamed Starlight Park. The attraction featured innovative rides like the Aeroplane Railway and the Whip, fireworks displays, more games of skills and chants, a radio station, a whirlpool, and they also hosted numerous opera and big band show performances at the Starlight Stadium. In 1922, Starlight Park began to show movies on pearl screens accompanied by a new sound system. 
It was an innovative way to present cinema, as one can see the movie, without any darkness. Yet it was not until 1927 that the Starlight Amusement Company acquired the auditorium steel frame of the Philadelphia Sesquicentennial Exposition of the year before. The entire structure was dismantled, shipped over to the Bronx, and reassembled near the amusement park's entrance on East 177th Street and DeVoe Place. The 105,000-square-foot pavilion was named the Bronx Coliseum, then later on, the New York Coliseum, which is not to be confused with the one in Manhattan. It was used for such activities as political rallies, boxing fights, dog shows, and Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey would hold their circus there. However, Starlight Park began to feel the effects from a string of unfortunate accidents leading to death, economic effects of the Great Depression, and bouts of fire at its wooden structures and rides. In 1932, Starlight Park saw a devastating fire that consumed almost half of the park, gradually leading it down a slow, deathly path. Although the park still catered to visitors, since the largest swimming pool and coliseum would continue to be used by the masses for great events, Starlight Park would suffer another loss when the United States Army took over the Coliseum building during World War II for a truck facility, while the rest of the amusement park suffered another debilitating fire in 1947. After that, the park got the fatal blow when it was finally condemned and construction of the Cross Bronx Expressway cut right through the property. Fortunately, there is a new Starlight Park just south of where the amusement park once sat. Although a recreational park without any rides, the new Starlight Park features a synthetic turf multi-purpose field, picnic area, two new playgrounds with spray showers, basketball courts, multi-use pathways, and floating docks. Today, it is part of a new greenway that will soon connect other parks along the Bronx River stretching down to Hunts Point. Very cool. We're going to take a quick break and talk to someone who literally wrote the book on one of the more famous theme parks located in the Bronx. The world has changed a lot in the last year, and more than ever, you need health insurance you can rely on. Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield is the whole health company, and that means they are dedicated to improving the health and well-being of everyone in the Bronx and throughout the New York service area. They've been supporting the health of Bronxites for 86 years, providing you access to high-quality, affordable care. To learn how you can make a whole health connection, go to empireblue.com. Sigourney Weaver here to tell you about the New York Botanical Garden, 250 acres, 1 million plants, and you. Now open in the Bronx. Plan your visit at nybg.org. City Bike is expanding to the Bronx. Membership is only $179 annually. New Yorkers who live in NYCHA or receive SNAP benefits can take advantage of the discounted City Bike membership for only $5 a month. Visit citybikenyc.com pricing to get started. Welcome back. So we had a conversation with Mike Virgentino, author of Freedom Land USA, The Definitive History. Thank you, Mike, for joining us on our little podcast. Tell us about Freedom Land. Well, Freedom Land uh, was built uh, in uh, 1959 when we had groundbreaking in the Northeast Bronx 
And it was built by the same fellow who built Disneyland for Walt Disney. Once C.V. Wood and Walt Disney parted ways soon after Disneyland opened in 1955, Wood understood how to put together a theme park. So he was building theme parks all across the country. Well, you would say to yourself, well, with Disneyland opening and becoming popular, why would you need theme parks elsewhere in the country? Everybody is flocking to Disneyland. Well, actually, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, that wasn't occurring. Most of Disneyland's uh, guests were coming from maybe a 100, 150 mile radius from that park. And what a lot of business executives around the country saw said, well, look what the Disney brothers are doing in California. Why can't we do something similar in our part of the world? Because people were still traveling locally. They weren't, families weren't hopping on a plane or getting in a car to go cross country. So theme parks were starting to be conceived all across the country. And C.V. Wood, since he built the park for Disneyland, became the expert of how to put together soup to nuts of a theme park. So he built several along the way, and one of them ended up being Freedomland, where a lot of business executives and politicians in New York State and specifically New York City said, why can't we have a park here? So they bring in C.V. Wood uh, and his company to build the park in New York. And at first, they wasn't known where they were going to put the park. One place that was considered was Flushing Meadow. And that was stopped immediately by Robert Moses. He said, oh, no, you're not putting it in Queens in, in this park because I'm bringing the New York World's Fair here in 1964. So then William Zeckendorf, the big real estate baron of the day, not only across the country, but internationally, owned 400 acres of marshland in the Northeast Bronx. And he said, let's put it here. I can make my land available. And that's how Freedom Land became located in the Northeast Bronx. Freedom Land was so popular, even celebrities were known to visit and also perform there. This theme park was popular all across America. Uh, the, the promotion of it uh, went from Maine to California. And people were coming uh, to the park from all over the country. Uh, mostly east of the Mississippi, but a, a lot of people did come from uh, west of the Mississippi. And I know uh, several as, as children who came, whose parents brought them from California uh, to New York and to see Freedom Land. Uh, in the second year of the park, they started adding a lot of uh, name entertainment of the day. Now, again, Freedom Land was an American history theme park. So where are you going to put this entertainment that just didn't fit in with the theme of the 1800s and the early 1900s. Well, Satellite City was the seventh themed area, and it was a contemporary area, which focused on Cape Canaveral and the space race uh, between the United States and Russia. So in that area of the park in the second season, they uh, created a band shell and they called it the Moon Bowl. And uh, it was a stage and they had, uh, uh, they created on the floor, uh, they put in a wood floor and it ended up being the world's largest outdoor dance floor. And the entertainers they had there included a lot of the 
uh, big bands or swing bands from the 30s and 40s, including Benny Goodman. They had Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Lionel Hampton were, were among those who performed, as well as uh, the uh, singers who were popular uh, at that time. Uh, Brenda Lee, uh, uh, Dion DiMucci, uh, Bobby Darin, uh, Jerry Vale, uh, and, and many others. And then we went on into the groups, which were the Four Seasons, the Temptations, um, and, and many of the girl groups, as well as the guy groups of the early 60s. I have, uh, in my research, I have documented that there were about 150 celebrity entertainers who appeared at Freedom Land from 1961 to 1964. And when I say that, not only were they singers or groups, but also some of the musicians too, some of the biggest jazz musicians performed when Louis Armstrong performed there on two separate occasions. So we had so many celebrities from the music world. We also had them from the acting and, uh, and comedy world. We had the Three Stooges there on several occasions. We, we had uh, uh, Tootie and Muldoon, people will remember Joey Ross, and Fred Gwynn from Car 54, Where Are You? Uh, we had Henry Fonda show up, not necessarily to perform, but some of these actors and actresses would just come to the park as VIPs and walk through the park. So we had Henry Fonda, Lucille Ball, Debbie Reynolds, uh, and many others uh, who were uh, seen to have their pictures taken, uh, to, have, uh, to give out autographs. It was a way to attract more people to come to the park. And we also had all the named DJs in New York at the time. So if you were a fan of the WMCA Good Guys or the All-Americans at WABC or Murray the K and the others at WINS when it was an all rock station, they all came and did their shows and live appearances at the park. With all its success, Freedom Land was short-lived and the reason was quite nefarious. Well, a lot of people will say Freedom Land could not compete with the 1964 World's Fair, uh, but that is a misnomer. It's become an urban myth. The World's Fair opening up had nothing to do with Freedom Land closing down. There was a deal that was made earlier on, and it was unbeknownst to C.V. Wood, the creator and builder of Freedom Land. Remember, the, marsh, uh, the, the land is marshland, and we had about 400 acres there. There was a plan by New York City and private developers and the state to build new housing units throughout New York City. You had Rochdale Village in Queens, Starrett City in Brooklyn. The third one was Co-op City in the Bronx. The problem was they couldn't build Co-op City because they couldn't put 25 to 30 story buildings on marshland. What had occurred was that the uh, Army Corps of Engineers said you can build on the land, but you have to do your feasibility studies first. And that was driving pilings into the ground and testing them every six months, every 12 months. And that would have to go on for about 20 years. Well, if you take 1960 and wait 20 years, you're already at 1980. The city could not wait that long. They knew there were going to be issues in the South Bronx and there were going to be people wanting to leave uh, the South Bronx. The same was occurring in parts of Brooklyn. And uh, they wanted to keep these people, the tax base and the jobs in the city. 
So that's why they conceived uh, these various uh, housing uh, communities, including Co-op City. But they couldn't wait for, for 1980 to start building. So someone twisted the arm of the Army Corps of Engineers. Was it William Zeckendorf, the landowner? Was it Robert Moses who had his hands in everything, especially in the Bronx? Uh, was it Mayor Wagner who was up for reelection in 1962? Was it Governor Nelson Rockefeller? They're always looking for votes and jobs and, and development. So what occurred was instead of waiting 20 years, someone twisted the arm of the Army Corps of Engineers and they said, okay, you don't have to wait 20 years to decide if you can build these apartment buildings on the land. You will get a variance and you can do it in five years, but you have to meet certain uh, criteria. And it really was put up some buildings, a couple of stories tall on the land and test them and see where they are within five years. If at the end of the five year period, the foundations are still sound, the walls haven't cracked, the ceilings haven't cracked, none of the buildings have collapsed or caused danger. Uh, even though, you know, the tide is still coming in and going out on the marshland from East Chester Bay, if everything is perfect in five years, you will have your variance and you could build Co-op City. Freedom Land lasts exactly five years. And during the process, uh, the management of Freedom Land, which is a convoluted mix of, of people and companies and subsidiaries, they're driving, slowly driving Freedom Land into bankruptcy. I have heard stories, there was a lot of skimming of, of the entrance fees that people would pay, skimming them off the top. The entrance fees would not match the ticket sales. They would report uh, uh, poor income when actually there was good income, but it wasn't documented. As a matter of fact, we found a story of a fellow by the name of Charlie Wood, who is no relation to Freedom Land's builder. Charlie Wood owned two uh, parks in Lake George, uh, Storytown, USA, and Gaslight Village. This was in the 50s and in the 60s. A lot of people may have gone up there on their summer vacations. Well, Charlie bought a lot of attractions from Freedom Land and brought them up to Lake George once Freedom Land was declared a bankrupt. And he also brought a lot of behind the scenes materials, desks, chairs, file cabinets. Well, supposedly Charlie found in one of those uh, file drawers, two sets of books, two sets of financial books, two sets of attendance records, the, the real ones and the ones that were presented to the public. So it was the story that Freedom Land couldn't uh, couldn't make a go of it, but it really wasn't true. Freedom Land was popular. It did take a little dip in 1964 attendance-wise because uh, of the New York World's Fair. But remember, the fair was only going to last two years. So once the fair was over, other than Palisades Amusement Park, and you still had Coney Island and you had, and you had uh, Rockaway Beach, uh, Freedom Land was the only theme park. Everything else was an amusement park. So Freedom Land could have continued to survive if they wanted it to. But the goal was uh, it was a placeholder for the property to build Co-op City. Where can we find out more about Freedom Land? 
Uh, Freedom Land USA, the definitive history uh, is only found online. You can find it on Amazon, Goodreads, Barnes and Noble, and other online retailers that carry books. Uh, and uh, anyone interested in, also in Freedom Land besides that can uh, join me on uh, social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and now Pinterest. Thank you, Mike. Also, check out Lost Amusement Parks of New York City, Beyond Coney Island, by Wesley Gottluck. Today, the only thing that marks the site of Freedom Land is a plaque affixed on a stone that sits where the main entrance to the park was on Bartow Avenue. When we come back, we'll talk about a few more outdoor attractions that operated alongside the borough's amusement parks. Get it, baby, get it! And now for a little segment we like to call Yo Angel. Yo Olga. I was once told that the Bronx is the only borough in New York City that is on the mainland United States. However, that's not entirely correct, right? Yes, Olga. And you can blame Manhattan for it. Marble Hill is a Manhattan community of a little over 50 acres that is physically part of the Bronx. It's called Marble Hill because there's actual marble deposits inside the hill. Now, how is that possible, one may ask? Well, for millions of years up until 1895, the small landmass in which the village of Marble Hill sits on was physically attached to the very top of Manhattan Island, separated by the Spite and Dival Creek from the Annex District, which we now call the Bronx, Marble Hill was detached from Manhattan Island when the new United States Ship Canal, or the Harlem Ship Canal, was cut through just below the village. This massive project joined both the Harlem and Hudson Rivers. Although the new canal made ship navigation a lot easier, Marble Hill was awkwardly left as an island for quite some time. Well, to make a long story short, in 1913, Spite and Ivo Creek was filled in, which made Marble Hill, a Manhattan community, become part of the Bronx, which sits on the mainland United States. It is quite a peculiar situation, however. While fellow Marble Hillians cannot vote for any Bronx elected officials on the city and state levels, they still live within a Bronx school district, use Bronx telephone area and zip codes, and are served by its Bronx community boards. When the Bronx became its own county in 1914, just a year later after Marble Hill was attached to it, the great debate as to what was part of Manhattan and what was part of the Bronx commenced. It was not until 1984 that an act of the New York State Legislature kept Marble Hill as a Manhattan community and thus sticking it to the Bronx for many more years to come. Oy vey. And now you know. This is a Bronx-bound one train. The next stop is Marble Hill, 225th Street. So we mentioned the major amusement parks that once catered to the Bronx throughout its history. But there were some lesser-known outdoor attractions as well. Yes. During the mid-19th century, the Bronx was still a bucolic scene where many New Yorkers spent their summer days and weekends. The high bridge over the Harlem River was a 19th century attraction for families out for a Sunday excursion. The bridge still stands and is the oldest in the city. Kyle's Park near the high bridge was a locale for leisure and comfort, 
where many enjoyed leisurely walks along trails in the surrounding woods and marvelous shoreside views of the River Harlem. On Classen Point, Higgs Beach Camp, an adjoining picnic area and pavilion, Killian's Grove, were both popular spots at the turn of the 20th century, until they were incorporated into a bungalow colony called Harding Park, named in honor of President Warren G. Harding. These bungalows became permanent year-round residences. And speaking of bungalows, many Bronxites don't know that prior to the 1930s, Orchard Beach in Pelham Bay was a collection of small bungalows near the City Island Bridge that were rented to beachgoers each year. It was sponsored by the Parents Orchard Beach Front Street Association. This all ended when Rodman's Neck and Hunter Island was attached by Sand Landfill to create the new Orchard Beach in the late 1930s. And speaking of Hunter Island, by the turn of the 20th century, Hunter Island was a popular campsite in Pelham Bay for summer visitors. When the Bronx Parks Department cleared land near the beach for campsites and began issuing permits again, camping increased steadily in subsequent years that by 1917, seasonal attendance had risen to half a million. Well, I'm really tired from all this fun in the sun talk about amusement parks, but we have to go home now. That's our show this week. Thank all of you for tuning in to our Go Bronx pod, produced by the Bronx Tourism Council and made possible by Blue Cross Blue Shield, the whole health company. Additional support is provided by NYC and Company. Gracias, thank you very mucho to the Bronx Museum of the Arts for allowing us to set up our makeshift recording studio today. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at GoBXPod. If you like us, tell your friends. And if they already like us, make some new friends and then tell them. For information about this episode and more, visit ilovethebronx.com. And while you're there, subscribe to our e-newsletter to get the latest and greatest news from and about the Bronx. As always, I'm Olga Luz. And I'm Angel. Bronxly yours. yours.